everybody. Welcome back to Recovering Church Girls. I'm your host, Tanya Adlita, and I have with me a dear friend. She may not even know this, but I would say she was a bit of an idol for me as a child growing up, and she's giving me that look of, oh, please. Laura Lee Scott, the founder and director of Seeing Red, was a member of the same church that I grew up in and, you know, was just that moment of always looking up to her. So can I tell you how incredibly excited I am to have this conversation? Okay. Hi. <laughs> well, now that you've like totally, okay, I'm thrilled to be here with you, Tanya. <laughs> and it's, you know, thank you for the invitation. And I, it's been really a treat for me to see the work that you've done and put in the world um, with your own, just, you've just got just such a incredible spirit and, you know, a true entrepreneurial spirit. And it's really wonderful to reconnect after all these years to see where you are, what you're doing. And and to continue to cheer you on in what you're going to continue to put out in the world. I think it's needed, it's relevant, and you go, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Why, thank you. I so appreciate that. So take me back to when you and I were in the same place at the same time, was a tiny little hill town in Western Massachusetts. We were attending an Assembly of God church. And not long after my family came into the community, you made your way out into the world and were pursuing uh, teaching and preaching as your career. What was that like in this era? You know, thinking back in the times, it wasn't very common to see very many women preachers. And here you are making waves. I've realized over the course of the the last few decades of my life that making waves, I think, is a part of my DNA, whether I whether I want to admit it or own it or not. So why not embrace it? But okay, let's go way back in time to that uh, almost you know idyllic part of the the country. We were in the you know the Berkshires in the the Valley of the Berkshires, and for me growing up, um, it it was unique because I grew up both in this country, you know, just real country life. As you know, the town we grew up in, we didn't, I, we didn't even have a stoplight. We had cattle crossings, <laughs> right? We didn't even have stoplights. Um, so I had, you know, and, and while as a teenager, I kind of looked down on that and really in all honesty, um, as I made my way into the world, tried to hide the fact that mm -hmm. I was, you know, from the country because I felt like it somehow made me so much less sophisticated from my, you know, city friends as I was getting involved in student government and getting, and now coming full circle, I am so grateful, uh, for that experience. Um, and, and I grew up having, I think the experience of the best of both worlds because of my dance background. And that's a part way before you get to the, you know, the Bible school piece was growing up in the dance studio world and going into New York city to dance and, and train with Broadway choreographers as a, you know, 10, 11 and 12 year old girl. And yet still having the grounding of growing up in this little teeny tiny town where, you know, on weekends, if I wasn't dancing, which was unusual, I'd ride my bike to the library and take out <laughs> the maximum amount of books, pedal home and curl up under our apple tree, you know, with a, with a good book and an apple. So having that dichotomy uh, internally, I think has really served me well. And as I said, I've come full circle from trying to hide that part to really embracing what that, what that gave me. Mm -hmm. um, 
But as you're saying, you know, the, so the Bible school, so I, I grew up in, you know, as you did with this little tiny church. And I was told as a, as a young girl, when I wanted to dance in church, that that was not allowed, that it wasn't okay. And the reason I was given for dancing, not being okay. And dance for me at 12 and 13 was seven days a week. It was my identity. It was my social circle. It was what I knew I wanted to do with my life. Now I'm embracing a spirituality that in many cases felt it was very real and very genuine. And now to be told that I had to make a choice between what I passionately loved to do and felt was part of my future and a spirituality that was really beginning to inform part of who I was and how I saw the world. And the reason I was being given for being told I I could not dance and could not dance in church was because it might give men bad thoughts. Mm. And so already, I mean, you know, this is recovering church girls, right? So so at (laughs) at 13 you know, I, I knew a couple things. I knew in my heart of hearts that what I wanted to do was not, not wrong, but I did not have the resources at that point in my life practically, um, to, to pursue that. So I, you know, I complied, Mm -hmm. I complied with the culture, you know, the culture of that little tiny Pentecostal church, the culture, um, and, and I internalized the wound, which is what something that an experience that I think regardless of the specifics, so many women in particular can mm-hmm. identify with. And so, um, I internalized that and, you know, wound up in a, in a Bible school. I was told you can't dance in church. And they found out that I was one of those bossy little girls who you couldn't be, you know, you couldn't shut up. And so, you know, one of the gifts, and you well know, was that church was very, and that denomination was started by women and, you know, purported to totally support women in ministry. And so off I was sent to a Bible school where I learned very quickly at 18 and 19 years old that uh, even in that denomination, and this was going back in the 1980s, that um, it was still culturally not acceptable to be a woman who had something to say in public, uh, to be a woman who who held, you know, strong opinions, um, even within a denomination that claimed to support women and was in fact started by women with, right. <laughs> with strong opinions and with a you know with a spiritual message, um, and so uh, I was you know, I was told by the uh, academic dean of this school, they wanted me to tour for the school, but they really didn't know what to do with me because one, I couldn't sing, you know, so it was acceptable <laughs> if you were a woman to play the piano and sing. But if I sang, I would clear out the, the church <laughs> faster than the fire alarm. So they didn't really know what to do with me. And they, they, but they wanted me to tour and represent the college. So they called me into their office and the academic dean, who was very nervous, sat down with me and said, Laura Lee, you know, you've been selected by the faculty as one of the best representatives of our school, but, and you're one of the best speakers, but we're, you know, we're concerned that if we, if we schedule you to preach in some of these churches, they might withdraw their funding from the college. Hmm. And so would you to put on you or anything like that? No, I was 19, you know, and I mean, this represented a significant scholarship, you know, a tuition scholarship, which my parents would be very grateful for. So, um, they asked if I would go on the tour 
they would let me do some drama that I could at least act, even though I couldn't sing. And they asked if I would at least help coach the other two uh, guys who were traveling with us in their in their preaching and in their in their teaching. Um, and they did let me speak. I think at like you know one church that was out in like the Ozark Mountains somewhere <laughs> that had like six people and three goats. Um, <laughs> and the goats count. You've got to count the goats. Yeah, you have to count the goats. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing you say, just to to be really clear about this, here your marks are among the highest of your class. Uh, There's a story I would love for you to share about one of your more popular sermons and what happened with your notes after that. You are outperforming everyone else in your class, and yet your role is to be that of supporting the guys that are frontlining this tour. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, and, and I will say this, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm grateful for those experiences, but like all of us, I think as women and men, you know, when you get past a certain point in life, you, you begin to, to see the world very differently psychologically, what's happening if you're into Jungian psychology. So I, I, you know, I went from Bible school to the world of Jungian psychology. So I've had a foot in both, you know, both the most conservative, one of the most conservative um, worlds, and also a world that I guess you could label as, as liberal. And so I guess the story of, you know, the country, the city, the conservative, the liberal, it's like, I've never really fit neatly into a box or a category. I've always, and I think that that's indicative of a, you know, of a really creative psyche mm-hmm. um, and in particular, but yeah, in this, in this Bible school, it was actually, it was the first, the story you're talking about was the first time I had to, in class, give a uh, exegetical sermon. And that meant that you had to go into the original language um, whether that was Hebrew or Greek, depending on Old or New Testament, and you had to stick to the text and stick to. And so the, the message I chose, because I was so tired of being told by all my primarily male classmates that a woman's role was to submit, and they were all quoting Ephesians 4 at me, I decided to exegete Ephesians 4. Because I really wanted to know. I was 19 years old, and I thought, okay, what is all this submission stuff? And when <laughs> I did... I found some incredible things. Um, first of all, what that word submit in the Greek actually means in that particular verse was not what it was being commonly held to mean. It was not about, you know, a blanket submission of, of women to men. It had, it was entirely related to the sanctity of the marriage relationship and the sacredness of what happens and what, what is intended to happen within that relationship. That is not about power. It is about self-sacrificial love and honoring each other. And it, and it is very um, specific to the individual couple. In other words, there's no prescription for what that relationship gets to look. No one else gets to weigh in on what that relationship looks like. That's a sacred covenant between two people. Um, and I think that's a piece that we've, you know, we've lost uh, today. But anyway, I gave that, I gave that sermon. It was my very first one. My knees were knocking. The classroom was almost all men. Um, the professor, of course, was a pastor. He was a man. And everyone in the class is rating you while you're speaking. I opened it up with some jokes I got off of a napkin um, from a bar room, even though I didn't <laughs> drink at the time. I don't even know where or how I got, I think a restaurant. 
some some jokes about women which were you know laughed and then but then when i flipped the script and told some jokes about you know husbands and men the laughter wasn't anywhere close as <laughs> to being quite as uh, enthusiastic but I gave the the message and um, the next week we went back to class and everyone was, you were getting your manuscripts graded. You were getting the critiques from your classmate and everyone was one, one gentleman in particular, who's a pastor of a very successful church today um, was kind of bragging about his grade and waving his, his paper around to everyone. And um, the person who was sitting next to me saw my grade and held it up and, um, you know, I had out preached, you know, most of the guys apparently in the class. Um, but, you know, the professor asked to speak with me after class. And he said to me, Laura Lee, I, you know, as you know, pastor my own church, and I would like permission to give your sermon to my church. He wanted to use my manuscript and he was asking permission for my manuscript. And at 19 years old, I mean, I was absolutely, I was thrilled. I was flattered. Um, and think, and of course I said, well, you know, yes, of course you can. Of course, now looking back at that, you know, 19 year old self, I want to walk into that classroom and put my arm around that 19 year old girl and say, sweetie, you need to tell him that you'd be very happy to come give your message mm -hmm. at his church, you know? So, so there's this evolution, there's this process for us um, of, of, you know, I think seeing, um, seeing the, oppression that has been normalized mm -hmm. within the church world and within scripture. And it's not because it's, it's, you know, I think it's learning to see with new eyes mm -hmm. for ourselves, learning to see with our own eyes, learning to, to author for ourselves. Um, that is so vital to the work that, that needs to be done for each of us individually, as well as collectively today as women. Absolutely. And I love there's a few different times throughout you sharing these stories that I'm hearing the value of individuality in our spiritual journeys. And I so appreciate that because as I'm digging deeper and deeper into the research, working on the book for Recovering Church Girls, over and over, there is one through line for the church, and it's that of conformity. So forget, you know, what we're actually talking about in terms of where we place our faith or any of those spiritual beliefs, just the culture of the church is one that continues to drive conformity in some way, shape, or form on top of the idea of sacrificial living to the point of martyrdom and valuing that more highly than anything else. So when it comes to the idea of taking care of ourselves, literally our physical bodies, our mental, our emotional well-being, all these different aspects of ourselves. Those of us who have spent decades in this environment, for many of us, we've fragmented into scattered pieces that we're now starting to reconcile. How do I hold what I believe with this culture that I've experienced? And where does that take me now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I think as as women in particular, both within Christianity, but also, also mythologically and also culturally, the, the template that we're given uh, is that we are, that's part of our, the role of becoming woman is to sacrifice yourself. Mm. So it's not only within, you know, it, it's about the sacrifice the daughter, you know, beauty and the beast is a daughter who sacrifices herself first for her father and then to redeem 
a, a monster, you know, a monster of the masculine figure. We're, we're given that message mythologically in Iphigenia. We're given that message over and over again in scripture. And more often than not, the scriptural message is really the women, the sacrifice of the feminine isn't even acknowledged or named within mm. Christianity. So, um, so I think, yeah, it's not only about self-care, it's about self-value and self-affirmation and the right to name ourselves to author ourselves there's a there i think is a particular um specificity within the feminine that has been denied and has been hidden throughout at least evangelicalism you could say the same it's not just evangelicalism and again i think what's important and you know for me it's not about bashing the church, there's two kinds of critics. There's the critic who has walked away from mm-hmm. something and just, you know, and, and it's, this isn't about a vendetta. And then there's the critic who is coming from a place that's deeply rooted in love and compassion and wants to save, you know, and redeem, you know, there's two different, and I think it's important to make that distinction relative to this conversation, because that's, that, that second place is absolutely where I see myself as someone who does not want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm not willing to simply abandon Mm -hmm. the church per se. Um, But because of my own experiences, I've had to go back and rediscover scripture um, in a light that allows me to see what was hidden in plain sight because of a patriarchal packaging that, that did not allow me as a woman to dance, mm-hmm. you know, did not allow me initially to speak, did not allow me to own the fact that my God-given DNA was, I was born into this world, a bossy little girl. I mean, mm-hmm. I didn't know how to be any other way. And so all those bossy little girls out there have been you know, given a version of Christianity that is telling them that who they have been created to be is somehow transgressive. Right. And these are the pieces that I think we have to, you know, we have to, we have to flip the script. We have to, we have to put on a different lens to be able to see, you know, I mean, Easter, you know, we just celebrated Easter. I mean, Easter services, if you wanted to be absolutely literal, and I think there's a meme out there somewhere on Facebook that addresses this. If you really want to be true to the literal story of Easter, every Easter service in every church across this country should have been preached by a woman or three women, actually, because it was the three women who went to the tomb, you know, that day. And, And I think this is part of our journey as women we, you know, we go to the bathroom in groups, right? (laughs) As women, there's something, there's something about this feminine archetypally, there's something about the feminine psyche that, that we are connected Mm -hmm. and we, and we move in a connected way and our psyche connects. And, and so there's a power that is inherent when we as women join arms, join forces, join voices and realize and recognize there's a bigger story here and a bigger reality waiting for us to discover um, about ourselves and about the world. And I think it's all there in scripture. Christ affirmed women um, individually and collectively. Almost every example he held up to his disciples of genuine worship, of genuine giving was was a feminine example. That was revolutionary. We, we're not, I don't think we're given a respect for just how revolutionary Christ was in what he did and how he did it. Hmm. 
that makes so much sense. And I think when things become rote and this idea of, you know, we take the context on a very surface level and just assign different things to, oh, well, that was what they meant back then without actually, again, individually doing the study and adding more tools we lose so much of the depth and the context and the nuance of what was said and what was done and the kinds of things that we can take out of that now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the story of the three women at the tomb, you know, if you put yourself in that story, if you change the point of view, see the point of view of how we look at the story influences the meaning that we're able to glean from the story. And more often than not, the point of view that we've been given throughout scripture is a masculine point of view. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a legitimate inherent. Obviously, we need to embrace that. There's, there's a lot for us to be learned. But the point of view, more often than not, that has not been looked through. And that I think in the times in which we live today, for so many different reasons, is vital to our humanity is the feminine point of view. And when you go back and you look in scripture through the, the feminine point of view, there is such profundity um, and, and you know such incredible wisdom there to be gleaned. I mean, those three women at the tomb, I mean, imagine, and this is, I think, speaks to our journey um, as we go through life, as we, you know, the Jungian term would be individuate. You know, Carl Jung wrote that, that, the attitude that we take with us in the morning of life does not serve us in the afternoon of life. Mm. And so, you know, somewhere in, in midlife, all of us come smack into usually more than one crisis, right? Where, the, where we start realizing not only does my life need to change, but the tectonic plates of how I know and understand myself and the world in which I'm in has to change. And this is a really scary place because it's, it's, it's a place of where things that have always served us well, psychologically, materially, no longer serve. Mm -hmm. And so there's this season of, it, it can feel almost like terror. It can feel very much like death and dying. And the, the three women journeying to the tomb, when you look at just that story through the lens of the feminine and what it has to share for all of us, women and men, is profound mm -hmm. because one of the things that story brings out is that, you know, until, first of all, those three women had to have the courage to go to the, to go to the tomb. They could have been arrested. All his disciples, all his followers were in hiding at that point. You right. know, no one wanted to be identified with Jesus at that point. Everyone had fled. And this was his mother. Any of us who are moms, you know, you know, it, it, this was his mother. She was saying, I am going to honor my child. I'm going to honor what he stood for. I'm going to honor. And her Mary Magdalene, and we're not really sure who the other third, who the third woman is. Scholars are divided, but, but this grieving mother who was incredibly strong, incredibly powerful, who was taking a stand, even in the midst of her grief, was determined that she was going to go and she was going to face what she, the last thing in the world she wanted to see. Mm. And, and part of this process for us is going to those places that feel like they are filled with terror. And it's not until we step across that threshold, literally go into the tomb. When these three women stepped into that tomb, they were met by an angel who said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? 
And that's a question that at midlife, many of us realize we're looking in the dead places. What once was living Hmm. is now dead. And we have to, you know, the angel was a, was a symbol of an orientation that, that literally turned them around, right? Did, had them do a 180 and sent them back down the same path they had just come, but with a completely different orientation, Mm -hmm. a completely different orientation. And I think that that's part of what it's both individual to us as women, when we're in these seasons of profound change, which women, even more so than men, we're going through this change. This is biological and physical for us, not just psychological. I mean, our, our brain cells are literally changing in this season. So we are experiencing this in an embodied way, as well as in a psychological way. These, this is, can be a season of profound change. And I believe can usher us into a season of profound creativity and authority and strength. Well, now speaking of creativity and authority, I'd love to talk more about your history in dance and the art that you have created in that, in that vein, but also more specifically, when you mentioned earlier, you internalized the pain of being told that you could not dance because men would dot, dot, dot. And I find that that's such an interesting thing that so many of us have experienced for so many different reasons, the idea of we carry the burden of their behavior. And again, if you know me in real life, or if you've listened to more than one episode, you know that my intention is not to be the you know male bashing stereotype. That's not who I am. That's not what I believe. And yet there's something within this patriarchal environment that has infantilized men and their responsibility and their actions and put even more pressure on the women to not only pick up the slack, but then to overcompensate for whatever, you know, other things might be at play here. So I'd love to dive into that just a little bit more deeply for you specifically, knowing firsthand your love of dance, but then also a lifetime of career in it. How did you work through giving that aspect of your personality of your identity up and what did that what did that do to you through you for you in the process yeah i mean that's a, a huge question but but i think you know initially as a 13 year old girl what i did was i i you know i spiritualized it i told myself even though i knew in my heart of hearts that dancing was not wrong and that, you know, if men had a problem with, you know, a 12 or a 13 year old girl dancing for God in a church, um, that the problem was theirs and not the, not the, not right. the 12 or 13 year old girl. I knew that at 12 and 13, no one needed to, to tell me otherwise. But I also recognized that at that time for me personally, um, that this was my world. It was my reality. I couldn't put myself in a car and drive myself somewhere to dance. I had to, I had to learn and I, I grieved and I mourned, Hmm. um, for years, uh, that I spiritualized it as well. This is what I'm sacrificing. And then it came full circle, probably 10 to 15 years later, by this point, I was married, had my first child, was working in a church and was approached by the pastor's wife and asked if I would consider giving dance classes to, uh, you know, because some of the moms in the church wanted their daughters to learn dance and they didn't want them learning it in studios where they were, you know, dancing to music that was very sexualized. Um, 
And so that, that was a one, you know, that was a 180 for me. And I realized, okay, the church culture had now changed. See, we can't, this is important. I think so many of the woundings for many of us, women and men. So, you know, patriarchy has not only wounded women, it's wounded men. And, and it wouldn't be any different if we'd had, if we'd had 3000 years of a matriarchal culture, we'd still, we'd be experiencing wounds. So I want to put that out there um, because I think sometimes it's so hard to have these conversations because there's this defensive knee jerk reaction. And so I always feel like we have to put that caveat out there of, we all need to heal collectively, Absolutely. men and women. And it's not just about bashing. Had, had we had 3,000 years of one particular kind of culture, we'd be needing to make the compensation for that culture. It just happens that, yes, it is patriarchy and it's influenced everything. And men and women, men have been given a, a version of masculinity. And I think where you that that is in, in many ways harmful to them and doesn't allow them to connect deeply to the, you know, some of the deepest places in their own soul doesn't, you know, leaves them emotionally straitjacketed and handicapped and not knowing how to make that connection. Uh, you know, women, like I said, if you're, if you are, there's particular versions of masculine and feminine that have been condoned and accepted by the culture, but that ostracizes exiles and others other equally authentic mm -hmm. versions of both masculine and feminine that have been othered, that have been walled out. And so Absolutely. this is part of our work as women and men is how do we come together to heal these wounds collectively? Um, and so I think, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. And, and for me, bringing together the dance, um, starting for me, healing my own inner wound. And I think this happens often. I think some of our, our, deepest works, our greatest works are rooted in our deepest woundings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the catch to that is making sure that we are healing ourselves first and that the work that we're putting out in the world is not our way of looking for healing. If, if mm -hmm. you can follow that, because right. that's when that work will wound others. So I think the, the important part of this is doing our own deep inner work. And this is a spiritual work. Whatever spirituality you ascribe to, these kinds of wounds are soul wounds. Mm -hmm. They don't just get healed theoretically. They don't just get healed intellectually. In fact, oftentimes the intellectual and the theoretical is a manic defense um, that keeps us from really connecting in, in an embodied way with our own emotions. And so, so for me even though I, I wasn't consciously connecting all these dots at the time, I was compelled. I, you know, yeah, I started a performing arts program that led to my own performing arts program that led to three different locations that led to productions that led to, I mean, it just kind of went on its own. But what was really going on, Tanya, was, was I was compelled. There was a, a mandate for me that I never wanted another little girl to be told, or little boy for that matter, to be told they couldn't dance mm. because it wasn't acceptable or it wasn't okay. And so, you know, in my mind consciously, I was, you know, I was offering something, but I was really, I was also healing and giving permission to that little girl inside of me that was told, no, you can't. 
I was saying, yes, you know, yes, you can. And yes, you will. And Mm -hmm. yes, so will lots of other little girls and little boys. If you want to dance, then, then I'll do everything I can to help you learn to dance. And so that went a long way to healing the amazing things I saw. I worked with inner city kids, you know, we would bring inner city kids. I was on on staff and had inner city kids that were in, in gangs would come in and I'd, start working with them in drama and dance. Um, and, and, you know, the, the transformation that I saw, um, because someone took the time to care and reach out to them and care about them and show them how to creatively see the creative is such a powerful vehicle for healing our own inner healing. I think it's one of the main vehicles uh, for our own inner healing. It's not the luxury, the icing on the cake. Oh, it's nice if you have time. I think that there is a mandate for creative engagement. If we want to be able to heal and begin to understand those places in our own psyches that we have walled off, sometimes because of trauma and sometimes because we have bought into a culture that's told us that who we authentically are is somehow transgressive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I could not agree with you more fully. Uh, and it's just, it's been such an exciting thing to start to see these pieces come back together again. And there's a restoration that happens in the naming, in the accepting, in the embracing of all the aspects of ourselves, as opposed to, again, you know, trying to be the square peg in the round hole or, you know, whatever other analogy about conformity that you want to use, the idea of being fully who we are and what a process and what a journey that can become, again, individually, but then when you are committed to being that person for yourself, inevitably, there is a community that comes alongside you. And there's something that is absolutely magical that happens in that space, because then it's not just you, even though you will always have your own journey. When it's not just you, there's so much more that can be created in the world and the kind of change that we can create and that we can co-create a new reality in that it's, it's really just one of the most humbling things I've ever been a part of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's what we're, you know, what we're seeing today. That's where, the, you know, where the hope is, but there's still, I think, so much more work to be done. Um, relative to and 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 in a culture that is hyper political, mm-hmm. this can become difficult because really at its root, at its core, this is this is work of the soul, not of the polis, P O L I S, right? And I think I think that this is where you know the church collectively has has failed us in that. And I think our children, I know your children, my children, they're all in that young adult, teenage to young adult age. I think they've seen, I think they saw through this and I think mm-hmm. they saw through it all along. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I think, you know, you and I grew up at least speaking to the, the evangelical, you know, mega church phenomenon, right? We grew up, I, I think the church was at lost sight of being able to understand what is Caesar's and what is God's. Hmm. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so we grew up with this pinnacle of success in the church world that became this mega church model that has 
far more to do with capitalism than it does with New Testament church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, the Starbucks, and while I'm, I love Starbucks and I'm all about <laughs> getting my cup of Starbucks, I'm, I don't mean to bash that, but I mean, you know, understanding that, yeah, that's not about, you know, that's not, you know, we, we go to Bible schools that are graduating preachers, but they're not graduating servants. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about the preaching. How do I build? It's all about the social media. It's all about, I mean, I know because I was on the inside of a mega church. I get it. You know, right. I was, you know, I, I understand that. And while, yes, we want to be culturally relevant, um, I think that the sad reality is we have to be very careful um, individually and collectively um, because I think that that really is indicative. I think in, in recent times in particular, that has become so incredibly apparent mm. that the church has subscribed to what is Caesar's and tried to make that the spiritual. And that's not, you know, when, when we get back at, at the end of the day, it's, it's not about any of that. You know, when, when, when we are politicizing Christianity you know, and we're holding on to our political power base. That was never what Christ was about. In fact, right. exactly the opposite. And so when that becomes the norm, mm-hmm. we have to step back and go, hey, what's really, what's really going on here? Absolutely. And the irony there is this idea of, you know, being in the world and not of it. And yet in so many ways, there's, there's just a conflation of ideas of what's happened. And somewhere along the way, we've lost the acceptance for humanity versus this idea of this is how we vote. This is how we dress. This is the music we listen to. These are the foods we eat, you know, whatever the external things are, as opposed to our matters of the heart and how we treat each other as human beings. And I think that one piece has been the thing that has driven the most people out of churches recently because they see the dissonance. And you mentioned the idea of our children. The conversations I have with my kids are fascinating to me because they, like you said, they saw things earlier than I did. And we would have conversations that it was like, well, wait a second, what about this and this and this? And the, the insights that I was able to glean from them. But not only that, I'm, I'm chuckling because I remember there was a moment where I said something out loud to my daughter that would have fed right along the whole purity culture line. I don't remember what it was. It was something about selecting a bathing suit for an upcoming swim party. And as soon as I said the words, I went, hold on a second. Just let me think. Never mind. I don't actually believe that. (laughs) Hold on. Let's come up with something new. (laughs) Let's figure this out together. Because I didn't want to simply just parrot what I was told or, you know, was held out to be the standard of the way of being a young woman in this environment. And so even just moments like that, I feel like in parenting my kids, it's giving me an opportunity to, in some ways, reparent myself in terms of reevaluate what it is that I believe to be true and how that lives out in my life. And I'll be very quick to say, I was one of the lucky ones. You know, I had a great childhood and I have parents who love me still to this day. And even though there's some things we don't necessarily agree on when it comes to these matters, we're still in a place of love and acceptance. And I am one of the lucky ones because there are so many that have been so hurt that they've lost their family of origin in this process as well. So, you know, when you think about that and again, this idea of community, 
the church that is supposed to be there to hold the brokenhearted that's actually causing the hearts to break that's where that's where i draw the line you know in that i love what you said earlier about those that are in and those that are out but can both hold accountable and say this is what's happening um, i think that's you're seeing more and more of this in society now which i think is a very good thing to be happening i think yeah i agree and and i think that you know our I think our children in particular really have seen through kind of the, the, um, the culture, the church culture, and they've rejected it as church culture. Um, even before we did, um, mm-hmm. they're really looking for what is authentic. Yeah. You know, what is real, what is authentic and what is authentic is never perfect. You know, and that's where I think they are, you know, they so, you know, my own children in particular, it's like kids and I've always worked with teenagers and I love teenagers because it's like, and I've always said this to people, whether they're parenting teens or they're just working with teens, it's like, you know what, just be real. Mm. They will be so forgiving if they know that you're just being honest and being real, you know? And I think that that's, we haven't given ourselves permission within church culture to be real. You know, that's one of the, it's like everyone's trying to conform to the super hyper, you know, again, it's, it was about health, wealth, and success. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but when I read the new Testament, I'm not seeing health, wealth, and success. You know, I think, I think one of the things that, that, that we collectively and individually have to come to grips with, and it's there in scripture is where do we go when we're suffering? Hmm. Where is God when really bad things happen? You know, and, and I think that the, the traditional church model has given us this message of there's something wrong with you, which is actually in Christ's time. That was not unlike the, you know, the, the, the message. If you were born with a handicap, you, it was considered, it meant that there was sin in your life or your parents' lives, Right we still have that message coming through unconsciously Mm -hmm. that if you don't have the perfect marriage and the perfect family and the perfect, then, then somehow you've messed up somewhere along the way and you have to fix it. Right. When we look in scripture, what we see is, is a reality that suffering is a part of life. I mean, our, not just our, our church culture, our, our culture as a whole, we want to medicate ourselves out of suffering. But when you look at suffering from a spiritual perspective, you find that it is in those places of deepest suffering where we're most clearly able to see hmm. what is truly important and what is truly real. And, and there is a spirituality. There is a, you know, Christ talked about that, that I will go with you through the waters. I will be with you in the flood. I will be, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's not, you know, well, here's the detour because you got it right. So you get to right. circumvent around. It's like, no, you're going to go through it. This is a part of being born into this terrible and beautiful world. Suffering is a part of this. And we need a spirituality that, that is able to embrace that and hold that and go through that with each other and come out on the other side. Those three women went into the tomb, but they came out. And they came out with a renewed purpose and a renewed vision and a renewed message. Yeah. I knew this was going to be such a fun conversation. And of course, here we are. And I know we're running short on time, but I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about what seeing red is all about, because I introduced you as this, and I don't want to leave that undone. I think this is such a beautiful thing that you're doing. 
Well, thank you. Well, seeing red is in, and it's continuing like anything and everything I guess I do. It's continuing to evolve, including <laughs> probably a name change in the not too distant future. I'm hard at work on, on a, a, a new model for it, but um, seeing red was born. And I know people hear that term seeing red and they think, oh, it's a bunch of angry women. So, <laughs> and, and, you know, that part of me, that's a little bit of a rebel kind of embraced the term for that reason, but that's really not the, the roots of seeing red. Seeing red is an um, international organization of uh, analysts, authors, artists, activists, focused around a, a uh, held vision of understanding um, from a psychoanalytical perspective, what are the roots? How do we get to the roots of this internalized oppression as, as women? But how do we do that in an interdisciplinary way? In other words, not just psychoanalytically, but, but creatively, how do we understand that? Um, and, and so it's, a, it's an online community, but we also hold conferences. We also hold creative immersion weekends where uh, women come together again from literally all around the world. I mean, this world of online communication is so great because it's made the world so much smaller, but um, we will come together and we will engage both creatively as well as psychoanalytically uh, digging in to understanding this idea of internalized oppression. So it's not about saying to everyone out there, here's how the world has to change in order for me. It's saying, how do I understand where this is rooted and how do I, and then begin to pull up by the roots, what needs to be pulled up mm -hmm. and to embrace what needs to be embraced. You said something a little bit earlier that is a big part of this, which is reparenting ourselves. You know, how do I become uh, that affirmer of myself that maybe I wasn't given as a young girl? Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do I affirm that for myself and how can I do that creatively and psychoanalytically? So seeing red is we offer, you know, online uh, webinars um, and, and communities because a big part of this is being able to discuss it. It's not just about the expert in the front of the room talking and everybody taking notes. It's about how do we learn from each other? Your story has so much that I can learn from someone else's story has so much. And the more diversity there is in those stories, the more opportunities for learning and for growth. And so that's part of what this is continuing to facilitate um, and continuing to grow. I mean, it's getting, it's gaining so much interest and so many incredible, amazing people are coming on board and it's now going to be going into an area where again, it's not women only because at, you know, as we said earlier, all of us need to heal collectively in different ways. Absolutely. Yeah. I am so excited to continue to keep an eye on this and just watch the experience continue to grow and change and to, you know, kind of up level, even mm -hmm. as you've already hit so much success in what it is that you're creating and putting out in the world. And yet, you know, in some ways, I, I kind of get the sense of you're just getting started, which is really fun. <laughs> You're absolutely right. We are just getting started. We're getting ready for a very big launch in the fall. So I'm sure, and I will be talking with you about that more too, because I think a lot of the work that you're doing, especially with this recovering church girls theme is so relevant and, and, and resonant. I, I think it's now more than ever, we need to, I think, really um, not only just do the work individually, but, but collectively. And we have to, it's so important. Um, that we learn how to have these conversations that instead of being divided and giving into this 
toxic communication that has kind of become the norm. I mean, I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it. Everyone has experienced it. If you're going to put something out there to start to set some boundaries and say, no, you know what? If we can't communicate in a compassionate way, if we can't learn to at least listen to each other, then, you know, we, I, I think that's, that's so critical. And there's so many people out there doing this. Your work that you're doing is, is contributing to that, but that's, that's a part of what seeing red is about. It was, you know, that, that name came out of a, a story of me meeting in, in Italy in, in the lobby of a hotel with a child psychoanalyst who was talking about working with children who'd been horrifically victimized, um, you know, horribly abused. And I asked her a question, and the question I asked her was, do you see any common patterns as you work with these children in trying to get them to begin to journey towards wholeness? And she thought about it. She did art therapy with them because as we know, these wounds, and again, this goes back to our conversation about why the creative is necessary. The kinds of wounds that so many of us have experienced go so much more deeper than words. And so in order to work with them, sometimes we have to dance with them. We have to draw them. We have to write poetry. We have to, that is the language of the soul. And so she worked with these children in an artistic way. And she said, Laura Lee, there's one thing I see that is almost, it it holds true for all of these children. She said, when I first start working with them, the crayon they always pick up is black and they just fill that paper with angry black marks. But she said, if I can connect with them, and I love that she said this, and if there is grace, the second color I all, they always choose is red. And when I see red, I know that there's hope. Hmm. So for me, seeing red is connected to that story. When I see red, I know that there's hope. I think that this is, this is a huge part of it, that one of the first steps for each of us in healing is, first of all, naming, hmm. giving ourselves permission to name. And this is not about a victim identity. Okay, this is not about this is not about owning the victimization as our identity, but you we cannot heal unless and until we have first named what it is that is broken, that is hurting, that is wounded. And it's naming it in order to then it's walking into that tomb in order to turn around and come back out. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's such a big part of it is giving ourselves permission as women to name the wounds, but then also to name ourselves, Mm -hmm. to name the work that we're going to put in the world. If you're a bossy little girl, you know what, be a bossy little girl, you go out there, you know, it's about working you know, as parents teaching our sons that it's okay to connect emotionally. It's okay for those tears to fall. It's okay to, you know, this is where the hope lies, I think, for all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for making time for this conversation. I'm so grateful to you, to the work that you've already done, that you're continuing to do, um, and just for getting to share this moment together. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tanya. And here's to more conversations. So thank you so much and bravo to you for this work as well.
Oh, thank you. And for those of you who are listening, I'm sure that there is someone in your life that would benefit from hearing this conversation as well. So I ask that you would share that. And along with sharing the episode, share what you appreciated about it. And maybe there is a new conversation that can start right there between the two of you already. And that's really what this is all about. It's sharing the conversation. It's finding ourselves in each other's stories. So thank you again for being a part of this and we will see you guys next time. Bye-bye.